the St. Rock went on to become the first vessel to sail from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean through the more northerly deep water Northwest Passage route. And that's the route that the explorers had been looking for for over 400 years at that time. They were going to form part of an invasion force into Western Greenland to secure cryolite and bauxite mines, which are used in the production of aluminum. That is Ken Burton, RCGS fellow, polar expedition leader and commander of St. Rock II, which retraced the historic voyage of Henry Larson through the Northwest Passage during World War II. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Happy New Year to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. I hope the holidays treated you all really well. I first met Ken Burton last November at Geographica, the annual Royal Canadian Geographical Fellows Dinner in Ottawa, which gets to how this podcast came about. It was at that same dinner in 2018 that I said to my wife, the people in this room are doing such fascinating things, you could interview 10 of them at random and have an amazing podcast series. And six months later, Explore was launched. Ken is further proof that premise is still strong. We were sitting at the same table at Geographica and got to talking, and the more I learned about his work as an expedition leader in the Arctic and Antarctic and as a coastal patrol commander with the RCMP, the more I wanted him to come on here as a guest. Among his many accomplishments, Ken has also served as Chief Executive Officer of the Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue Society and Executive Director of the Vancouver Maritime Museum. But this interview mostly focuses on the voyages of Henry Larson through the Canadian Arctic's Northwest Passage in 1940 on the RCMP ship, the St. Rock. It was only the second crossing of the Northwest Passage ever, and the first to do it from west to east and then back again. Decades later, Ken Burton, also with the RCMP, recreated that incredible voyage on the St. Rock II. In the process, Ken and his crew set the record for circumnavigating North America, a record which stands to this day. Ken has a great story to tell, so let's get to it. Ken Burton, welcome to the Explore podcast. Well, thank you very much. Great to be here. I, I always like to, when I'm talking to our explorers, love to find out where that germ of exploration began. And so where did you grow up and what was in the water, Ken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it wasn't the ocean, but I, I grew up in Aurelia, Ontario, and we were a very outdoors-orientated family and would spend uh, the summers canoeing in what is now, I guess, the Queen Elizabeth Park uh, area. And we still have a family cottage up in that part of, of the world. So that's how the summers were spent on, uh, on the river, Severn River and Black River, canoeing and exploring the outdoors. And, and for that, I, you know, I thank my father and my family for that, uh, that experience, because that indeed it probably is where that little seed was planted. Would there be canoe trips involved, like like multiple day canoe trips? Oh, absolutely. We would do multiple day canoe trips, round trips, or we'd actually strap canoes to uh, pontoons of of uh, amphibious aircraft and fly up, and then and uh, paddle back down and end up back in Aurelia, uh, which uh, was at that time a lot of beautiful, actually pristine wilderness, and uh, uh, on the way certainly down to Aurelia, and um, I just uh, fell in love with faraway places from that. That really was the fuel throughout my whole career to drive me to go to some of these parts of the world that I have been going to in the last, certainly in the last 25 or 30 years. Yeah, and a big chunk of that has been in the Arctic. And 
I mean, so what was that initial connection to the Arctic? Where did that hit? It's a bit of a convoluted story, but I think it's it's one that, uh, that your listeners will find interesting. I had started my career off as a as a documentary photographer. I worked at Toronto Western Hospital doing medical documentary films and became interested in forensics and uh, wanted to go into one of the forensic labs. And there's only two in Canada at that time, one in Ontario and uh, the RCMP one in Ottawa. So I applied for both the RCMP and, and the one in Ontario. And uh, a few months later, I found myself in training at the RCMP Academy in uh, in Regina. So I, I joined the RCMP, which is probably one of the furthest things from my mind, um, and went off to train mm-hmm. in Regina. And uh, when it came time to get posted after the six months, uh, and they did promise me after two years, I could go into the lab, but you had to do two years in the field first. So when I uh, graduated from uh, depot in Regina, I wanted to go north. I want to, this is my chance to get into the Arctic. Mm-hmm. I want to go north. And uh, I'll be darned, they sent me to North Vancouver, which I had no idea what what a North Vancouver was, and much to my horror, it was it was a suburb of a major city. And I went, no, no, that's not Rankin Inlet. That's not uh, Callaway. So um, uh, I started my career off in the RCMP. Did uh, did a couple of years, and uh, they they called me one day and said, "There's an opening in the lab now." And quite frankly, uh, I was having. Uh, uh, a lot of fun and very enjoyable and a, and a positive work experience in North Vancouver, which was a great city uh, uh, to live and work mm-hmm. in. And I said, I think I'll probably stay if you don't mind. And I was able to uh, stay in the RCMP. And in time, I joined the Marine Services. Now, I mean, the RCMP Marine Services, they do coastal policing on all three coasts in Canada. And uh, so I joined and became a deckhand and worked my way through. Uh, the system and ultimately became a skipper on an RCMP coastal patrol boat um, called the Lindsay, which was based here in in Vancouver. These are high-speed, all-welded aluminum catamarans. They're about 20 meters long, powered by big MAN diesel engines with all sorts of uh, really high-tech gear on it, which is uh, important in the story of the St. Rock. So I I was working the coastal patrol boats and uh, generally working between the Washington coast and the coast of Alaska. Uh, so I was seeing a lot of, uh, of really nice wilderness. And, uh, and that led me to relationship with the Vancouver Maritime Museum and the RCMP St. Rock, which was a RCMP vessel, which is really central to, to my time in the Arctic. Tell us about that. So the St. Rock. Sure. Well, where did you go with that? <laughs> where did I go with that? Well, I, I was I was absolutely uh, enthralled by the St. Rock story. Now, the St. Rock is a unique Canadian metaphor. This was a 104-foot uh, RCMP coastal patrol vessel built and launched in 1928. And um, it was built right here in British Columbia. It was named for a small Quebec parish of St. Rock, des Dadanais. And uh, it was skippered by an immigrant, Henry Larson, crewed by farm boys from all across Canada, and it was successful in service in the high Arctic with the help of the Inuit. So it is a really neat Canadian metaphor, and and that always fascinated me. Now, in time, the St. Rock went on to become the first vessel to sail from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean 
through the more northerly deep water northwest passage route. And that's the route that the explorers had been looking for for over 400 years at that time. Although people had walked it and, and Roald Amundsen had gone through from 1903 to 1906 on the shallow side. The St. Rock was the first to do it west to east through um, the Northwest Passage and ultimately went on to circumnavigate North America. And they completed the first circumnavigation in 1954. And I have to remember in 1969, less than one generation later, man was on the moon. So how difficult was it to go through the Northwest Passage? They had no charts. They couldn't rely on their compasses. Things like GPS didn't exist. Fog and weather and the environment all um, uh, challenged Henry Larson and the crew of the St. Rock. Just to catch up for a sec, though, this is 1940, right? Is that, is that the voyage we're talking about? Correct. That was a 1940 voyage. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the reason that St. Rock was sent through was they were going to form part of an invasion force. The war was on, of course. They were going to form part of an invasion force into western Greenland to secure cryolite and bauxite mines, which are used in the production of aluminum in Arvida, Quebec. So the original reason the St. Rock was sent through was a secret wartime mission. That wasn't released until the mid-90s. And uh, Henry Larson figured it would take them three months. It took them two and a half years. They spent over two years locked in Arctic ice. And uh, when they did get through to Halifax, they basically refitted the boat, turned around and came back east to west to Vancouver through the Northwest Passage and subsequently went back and forth through the Panama to uh, Halifax a couple of times. So it's part of the maritime history in Canada that most people uh, weren't aware of. No, and certainly I think probably not aware of the RCMP you know, involvement in that. And I mean, Henry Larson, I think, also is a name that people should know a lot more about. Um, Amundsen, as you say, was the first to go through the Northwest Passage properly in 1903. Uh, mm -hmm. So, the, but these were the second and then third voyages, right? I mean, pretty major feats. Major feats, uh, for sure. Now, the Saint Rock is a centerpiece of the Vancouver Maritime Museum. This was a 104-foot wooden vessel powered with a 75-horsepower engine, if you could imagine, and and sails had a top speed of six knots, and. Um, the trials and tribulations of their time in the Arctic was uh, is really well documented. And it was a, a really positive time in the Arctic, particularly between uh, the St. Rock and the Inuit, which, which is a bit of a diversion from the, the current story you're hearing about, you know, relationship with uh, First Nations mm -hmm. and Indigenous. Uh, and the honorary name that they had for Henry Larson was Henry Umatak, Henry with the big ship. Because he would uh, go on search and rescues, he helped them, he was supportive all through the 40s uh, when the St. Rock was uh, really active in the high Arctic. Yeah, I mean, if there's a lesson we've learned from the Franklin expedition is not being in touch with the Inuit, it, you know, comes at its very own real risks, right? So there's <laughs> there's a real, I mean, there's a, they, they know that place, they've been there a thousand years, you know, it's definitely worth your time to ask their advice. Well, absolutely, and, and Henry Larson hired a guide, a fellow by the name of Joseph Panapukachu, and when Joseph showed up on the ship, he brought not only himself, but his wife, his mother-in-law, and his three children along with a bunch of dogs on board the St. Rock. And it stayed with the St. Rock uh, over many, many years in the high Arctic. And uh, as I went through on what's going to became known as the St. Rock 2 program, is I had an opportunity 
to meet some of the Inuit who were actually children and, and basically grew up on the St. Rock. And, uh, and, of course, some of the crew members and uh, converse and chat with them about what was it really like and, and what really happened and what's, what's the personal stories uh, about those times in the high Arctic. What were they telling you? I mean, that's amazing to get firsthand accounts like that. Uh, it, it was amazing because I, I put, you know, very pointed questions to them. What kind of man was Henry Larson? And what did you miss most? Uh, I, I spoke at length and became good friends with both Billy Cashin, who was a, a 17-year-old crew member on the St. Rock, as well as uh, Eugene Hadley, who's a radio operator. And they, they said things like they missed... Um, uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. They were gone two and a half years. Uh, they, uh, they couldn't, uh, it was never warm enough in the ship to allow bread to rise. Uh, so they ended up eating almost this unleavened bread. Uh, when they were locked in Arctic ice, they would conduct these epic 800,000, 1200 mile dog sled patrols and explore and map and recover, uh, cairns that had been established by previous, uh, European explorers in the high Arctic and gather up um, material for the museum in Ottawa, for example. So they were very, very busy. But um, the uh, the stories of the day-to-day -day existence is what, what really fascinated uh, me. And it dealt with um, having to learn to live and work and travel like the Inuit in order to survive. And, and that's exactly what they did. When they went on the land, they always went with Inuit special constables and um, or contractors that were hired to help and support them and they hunted and they learned how to build igloos and shelters and where to go and what to watch for and how to read the ice and uh, and I think that's the reason why the St. Rock was ultimately so very very successful at the top of the world. Yeah, incredible. Uh, I'm just I'm struck by something you said earlier too. This was a wooden vessel. This was a wooden vessel Douglas fir and sheathed in Australian iron bark with a little bit of metal at the very bow. But it was far from what you would consider uh, a ship in the ice. It was actually based on the same design as the Fram and uh, the Mod, uh, uh, sort of a, a, a egg-shaped hull, which, when frozen in, it actually forced the ship up out of the ice, uh, which made it a good choice for ice, but a terrible choice for operating in the Pacific Ocean because it rocked and rolled. There's actually a song out there called Roly Poly St. Rock. And, and Henry Larson used to joke he'd be in the, in the, uh, uh, the very top uh, of the mask and the ship would go so far over he could reach out and slap the water with the left hand and come back up and slap the water with his right hand uh, while he was uh, on lookout <laughs> for ice. So uh, it was a, uh, uh, and going six knots, which is, that's the pace of a slow walking uh uh, you know, nice walk in the park. It's not very fast at all. This is 1940. I mean, there are obviously radio communications, but are they completely out of touch with people? They, they had radio communications, and it, uh, the, the great irony there is it would take them upwards of two weeks to get a signal out from um, the ship to Ottawa and get a reply from Ottawa. They they could tune into ultra-high-frequency radio bands occasionally and get news of the world, but uh, the joke was... Back then, it took them two weeks to get information from Ottawa, and here I was now in the year 2000 retracing it, and uh, even being an RCMP member, it takes me six, eight months to get a message back from Ottawa. Have things really changed, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, but I mean, they missed a, a pretty important chunk of the war almost. Well, they did, and, and indeed, uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed, and the Americans moved into western Greenland and secured the cryolite bauxite mines, so uh, their, their mission uh, to get to Greenland never, never was fulfilled. Then they turned around and had to come right back. And they lost one member, Albert Chartrand, actually passed away halfway through the passage. Uh, he was 20, mid-20s, uh, a young uh, RCMP member from Quebec, who had a massive heart attack, and he's currently buried in Pasley Bay, which is north of uh, what was was Spence Bay, is now Talalawak, uh, probably the the furthest away from any any civilization that any RCMP members buried. To, in fact, Larson and the crew did an 800 mile return dog sled to bring a Roman Catholic priest to uh, officiate over the burial of Albert Chartrand. So uh, it was a cold, lonely uh, two and a half years. That's incredible. Like that's an expedition in itself. Like, you know what I mean? That's, you know, expeditions within expeditions, you know, just the resilience of the people on board there is incredible. Yeah, and it has multiple layers. And indeed, I was so impressed by by what the St. Rock had done. Uh, In 1996, we were sort of sitting around saying, well, what are you going to do for the year 2000? Uh, And you can remember that, you know, the computers are going to stop, the world's going to stop spinning in in 2000. Uh, Nunavut was just becoming a territory in Canada. And I voiced a, a, a concept for an expedition. I said, I'd like to take one of a modern RCMP coastal patrol vessel. This is the all-welded aluminum, has a draft of about half a meter, and retrace Henry Larson's voyages. And I voiced that in 1996, and there was a, a person sitting in the, in the room that we were chatting with that was associated with the Vancouver Maritime Museum. And uh, a couple of months later, she called me up and she said, were you serious about perhaps retracing the voyages of the St. Rock? And I said, of course, yes. <laughs> what am I going to say now? She ran it up the flagpole to the Millennium Bureau, and the Millennium Bureau provided seed funding. Herb Gray was the deputy prime minister at the time, was a very strong supporter of the project, along with the governor general. Next thing you know, and by 1998, 1999, I am planning to take an RCMP coastal patrol vessel and do what was going to be a 24,000 nautical mile continuous circumnavigation of North America. That was the, the seed of the, the first big expedition that, that, I, uh, that I planned and worked on. At this point, you'd spent time in Arctic waters, had you? Had you been on patrol vessels up there? Or what was your experience? I would join the uh, Canadian Coast Guard. Out here, the Sir Wilfrid Laurier is the West Coast-based Coast Guard and would find my way up there on Coast Guard boats. So we worked quite seamlessly with the Coast Guard. And uh, but obviously, once you know we had determined that we're going to try this, I spent a lot more time uh, in the high Arctic. It would be a matter of uh, getting myself up to Barrow, Alaska, getting on the icebreaker, working west to east, or getting transferred to another icebreaker and and plotting. Because even in the year two thousand, uh, GPS was incredibly unreliable. Uh, only at that time. Maybe 2% of the Arctic had been navigated, had been uh, charted. So the charts were basically pure white. You don't know what's out there. Um, So it was a real, uh, it was really important for me to get information, firsthand information, not only about the Arctic, but other parts of North America. Because if I'm going to retrace the voyages of the St. Rock, I'm going right around North Vancouver, right around North America from Vancouver to Vancouver. Um, and I took advantage of friends and supporters who had boats on the East Coast, uh, Caribbean, and up and down the West Coast. So by the time 
that I'd been given a go-ahead to do the St. Rock program, I had covered about 80% of the intended transit. Um, I, I'd been up and down the St. Lawrence as a child. I knew the St. Lawrence, give or take, East Coast. So um, I was a diver with the RCMP. I'd worked on East Coast diving. So uh, I had a good sense of what what was out there. But make no mistake, it still took about a year and a half of intensive planning to uh, to get the final go-ahead to execute the uh, um, the voyage. And there was lots of challenges on the way. You'd have to have a very good understanding of Arctic sea ice and how that works, because it's, like it's a character of its own, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it, more importantly, you have to have friends who have a good understanding of Arctic sea ice. And uh, I received a phone call very early uh, in the planning stage, and uh, and the fellow that's talking on the other end uh, says, well, I'm a retired member, and my name is David Johns. And I said, oh, when did you retire? And he said, well, 19-whatever. It's like, and I'm going, that was like 40 years ago. Like, like what did you retire? He was an RCMP member. When were you an RCMP member? And he said, well, 1961, 62. And I'm going, that's 40 years ago. What have you been doing for the last 40 years? And he said, well, I just retired as a director of ice operations for the Canadian Coast Guard. And David Johns became my, my new best friend and mentor, um, along with a fellow named Gary Sidock, who uh, was in charge of search and rescue for the Coast Guard. So you'll find that if you and any of your listeners d- decide that they're going to take the step, that all manner of things fall into place. Serendipity happens. People appear. Supporters appear to help drive your project forward if you're patient and you listen closely so the the big thing i had with taking a current rcmp patrol vessel through was there a very shallow draft which means the ice grounds out there somewhere because the ice of course goes down deep into the water so it'll ground out in six seven eight nine meters of water while i can operate quite safely in two meters of water and the propellers on our vessel articulate. They move up and down through the water column. So I'm actually able to raise the propellers up and uh, have a, a net draft of about half a meter maximum. So I could actually go through water that's one meter deep uh, because all the ice grounds out there. Now, I had to be very careful because no ice can touch this aluminum hull. It will pierce the hull, and that would be a really bad thing. And I, I'm happy to say that uh, I, I didn't have any trouble with ice. Um, but in the event we did, one of the conditions uh, was that we, uh, we have an escort vessel. And uh, again, through friends and supporters, we were able to obtain the use of a recently retired Canadian Coast Guard vessel called the Simon Fraser. And Bob Mellis was the captain. And it was basically chartered to the Maritime Museum for $1. It was going into retirement uh, regardless. And we had to crew it with a volunteer crew. And almost the entire crew of uh, Simon Fraser signed up as volunteers to take the Simon Fraser on one last trip around uh, through the Arctic. So I did have a support vessel, and I could not have done it without the support vessel. Because as we were planning this, as I said, there were multiple layers. Doing the transit was probably the easy part keep Canada on the right, leave Vancouver, and just turn right, turn right, turn right, turn right all the way around. (laughs) But there was also an integrated science program led by uh, Dr. Eddie Carmack at the Institute of Ocean Science that Mm -hmm. was going to be the first total coastal um, 
science program dealing with uh, salinity and uh, ocean currents. Uh, so that was running in conjunction with the trip. We were going to spend a significant amount of time with David Woodman, who wrote Unraveling the Franklin Testimony from the Inuit, uh, looking yeah. for uh, Sir John Franklin, the Erebus and the Terror, or any signs of his vessels. Consberg Simrad Mesotech provided state-of-the-art, what was then experimental, forward-looking sector sonar for us to search the areas, and we, we did search the areas around uh, O'Reilly Island. So we were 60 miles away from the Arab, where the Erebus was found. So in the Arctic, that's very close. Oh, no way. Yeah, and uh, so we spent weeks searching for Sir John Franklin up there. The most important, in my mind, was telling the story of the St. Rock and sharing the story of the St. Rock to an international audience. And uh, this was in the days before Facebook and the days before Instagram. But we were able to share the stories of Henry Larson, the St. Rock, and the Arctic uh, to over 17 million people worldwide through the duration of the voyage. Yeah. I mean, just to go back to Henry Larson as, as a man, as a person, like, what is it that impresses you about him? I'm going to say his his love for the Arctic and the Inuit people. And I'll, I'll share one, one quick story. Uh, when I was interviewing uh, Mary Cousins, who was one of the children on board. And uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, Mary Cousins was anxious to go to these new residential schools that were popping up in the Arctic and in Canada. And, and she went to Henry Larson. And, and uh, this is from Mary's, this is Mary's story. It's her words. And she said, I asked Henry Larson about going to these new residential schools because I want to get educated. And, and Henry Larson looked at her and he, he had a great love for these, this whole family, whole Panapukachu family. And he said, Mary, you don't, you don't want to be going to, to those, those institutions. If you want to continue your education, I will send you to friends of mine that live in Hamilton, Ontario. They, you can live with them. You can finish mm-hmm. your high school and then do wherever you want. Uh, but you can do it safely. And he sent her to Hamilton, Ontario to live with family friends. And Mary ended up completing her master's degree in education from McMaster University. And then she went back into the high Arctic and became a leader in the education of the Inuit uh, population, particularly in Baffin Island. And she looked at me and she said, that's the kind of man Henry Larson was. Very powerful. Beyond his skill as a sailor and as a humanitarian, and and like anything, he made there was government policies that impacted his legacy in the fifties that I think he he regretted. They were primarily the relocations of Inuit to far north. He was part of the committee that was trying to facilitate that, which I think he uh, he he felt was um, um, it didn't work out. He had promised the Inuit personally that uh, if you don't like in Greece Fjord and in Resolute after one year, I will bring you back. And in that time period that they were establishing Greece Fjord and Craig Harbor and Resolute, uh, Henry Larson retired. And after a year, the Inuit came back and said, now we want to go home now. And the new RCMP structure in place said, well, that man's no longer with us. He had no authority to do that. So you're going to have to stay. And I think personally, I think Henry Larson nearly took that as being a um, a horrible turn in his his uh, career. 
Yeah, that's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they were human flagpoles. Exactly. Yep. So what was your, I mean, what were your main takeaways from your trip through this? And I want to say too, back then, I mean, this is the year 2000, climate change hasn't done a lot of what it's done to the North yet. So it's a very different place than it is now. Like we've got cruise ships going in and out of there all the time now, but that certainly wasn't happening in 2000. That's right. So uh, I ultimately departed Vancouver on July 1st, 2000. And we headed north along the British Columbia coast with visits into all the small little communities uh, up and down, uh, up the coast, into Alaskan waters, around Alaska, west to east, through the Arctic, down the east coast, in the St. Lawrence Seaway as far as Prescott, Ontario, where we had a meeting with the Governor General, and back out, uh, it was Adrian Clarkson at the time, back out the uh, St. Lawrence down the eastern seaboard of the United States with visits into strategic communities, New York, um, across into Florida for the boat show, uh, across the Caribbean with stops in Caribbean islands, following the original route of the St. Rock through the Panama Canal and back up the West Coast, arriving back in Vancouver on December 16th. So it was a 169-day, 24,000 nautical mile circumnavigation with visits into seven different countries. Um so it was a, uh, I was on board the entire time. I, I was the captain. The crew cycled off. I had a crew of four. So we had an engineer and two deckhands and myself. And we took turns with the laundry and, and cooking and, and everything else. It's not a very big vessel. It's, it's very small. Uh, the Simon Fraser did not accompany us through the southern portion. They, uh, they remained in Halifax. And, uh, and that's where the Simon Fraser ultimately was decommissioned. Um, we ran the science programs, we shared stories, we conducted, uh, uh, we did a documentary film. Uh, we repatriated over 1,200 photographs from the Vancouver Maritime Museum's library back into the Arctic communities. So we would be on board and had photographs up on the ship and people would come on the ship for, for tours or on the boat for tours. And they go, oh my God, there's my grandparents or my parents that they didn't have photographs of. Uh, so we actually re- repatriated uh, as much digital media as we could um, in those days on CDs back into all the communities uh, along with printed material and stories. And we captured the stories of the elders and their interaction with Henry Larson and the St. Rock through primarily the 30s and 40s. So all that was captured and and recorded for for posterity um, for a variety of reasons. Primarily, nine eleven happening after we got back, the world changed pretty quickly. Uh, the film documentary was never completed. Is it still waiting to be done? Is that is that that footage sits somewhere? Well, the footage sits at the Maritime Museum and with the RCMP, and and we had tried to uh, resurrect it, and uh, and due to unfortunate deaths in the production crew. The uh, that was never mm. completed, so it uh, it's used now as a resource base. Uh, in fact, David Woodman is is going to be yeah. viewing some uh, some of that material here uh, in the next week or two at my home, uh, going through it. So, any aspiring filmmakers out there, though, <laughs> should they get in touch? Or? Well, they they could, they should, uh, but um, again, the, it was unfortunate that it didn't materialize right after, but. We just got back. We, we, yeah. we decommissioned the ship. We shut things down, and 9-11 happened, and the world changed very, very dramatically. So the peripheral media that was to come out of it uh, and the science program results, I mean, there were a few papers written, but the actual to capitalize on it was severely impacted by the events of 9-11. 
And uh, I was put right back on a patrol boat doing, you know, coastal security right after that. So the ability to leverage that aspect, unfortunately, never materialized. Larson took two and a half years. This was not a two and a half year voyage for you, I don't think. (laughs) Well, the entire voyage was 169 days. Uh, uh, There you go. Yeah. And the portion of the Arctic would have been six weeks. But of course, we stopped and searched for Sir John Franklin with a sector looking sonar and a few other points of interest, I guess, along the way. So we, we took our time and we visited the Arctic communities and we would celebrate in the Arctic communities. Uh, we went to Tuktoyuktuk, Kugluktuk, into Cambridge Bay, Joe yeah. Haven, Tlaliwak, which was Svensk Bay, and up and into uh, Devon yeah, Island. Yeah. And I was I was just there. Pond, yeah. yeah. So uh, so we we heard all the stories from the Inuit and we, we recognized a lot of the people who had worked for the RCMP and help them um, uh, along the way at, at these community events. And uh, remember, Nunavut was a brand new territory at the time. It had only been in existence for a year at that point. So it was a, it was a good, uh, it was an interesting goodwill opportunity uh, to do that. And it was very, very successful, and I'm very proud to have been part of it. Um, and then uh, same with down the East Coast, uh, different interests along the way. The ship had a lot of technology on board that uh, piqued people's interest. In fact, we pulled into Havana, Cuba, which is where the St. Rock had originally gone. It stopped at Havana as well. And uh, quite by coincidence, there was a Canadian sailboat up on the rocks, but an 80-foot sailboat, and locals were coming out from Havana, and they were picking the boat clean. And we show up on the horizon, an RCMP police boat. Now, they knew knew we were coming, but the, the Navy didn't know we were coming with all this high-tech communication and sonar gear, and they assumed we were there to to safeguard the interest of this 80-foot yacht that was being picked clean. Canadian vessel. Canadian vessel. And, and we got arrested and taken into a military base in Havana and, and basically tied up at the dock and held there uh, under arrest. Uh, and it took the Canadian ambassador to get us out of Hawk the next day. He said, no, 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 no. That's nothing to do with it. And they were very apologetic that they had arrested us. I mean, we weren't thrown in jail or anything, but very apologetic that they had arrested us uh, and a little embarrassed. So we left and we went around the south side of Cuba and uh, we pulled in for fuel. And I picked up uh, Grama, which is the official newspaper of the Communist Party of Cuba. And we were on the front page and we were national heroes. So we got arrested in Havana and we're national (laughs) heroes in in southern uh, Cuba. Yeah, that's a. There were there were things happened down south that that were equally as amazing as the experience in the Arctic. Um, pulled in for fuel in southern Mexico, and my Spanish was pretty good. And uh, uh, so we go ahead and we get the fuel, and I've got a capable crew. We're taking on fuel, and uh, this gentleman jumps down the boat, young man about eighteen or nineteen years old. And he goes, "Hello, my name is Manuel. I am your translator." I said, okay, Manuel, maybe you can tell me what's going on here. He goes, my name is Manuel. I'm your translator. And I went, you don't speak English, do you? And he goes, no, my name is Manuel. (laughs) So I said, we stand over there and and stay out of the way. We took on fuel. And as the fuel hose was going back up to the dock, Manuel came up and he held out his hands and said, translation fee, $20. And I went, you you don't speak English. He goes, translation fee, $20. You you didn't do anything. And I went to policia, police. Uh, $20. And he was quite firm with me. And I went to Real Mandata Police del Canada, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. $20. 
twenty dollars translation fee, and I took him over to the side of the boat where it said police, and I went federales, and he looked at me, and a look of sheer terror came over his face. He reached into his pocket and he gave me twenty dollars. <laughs> so we laughed so hard we gave him we gave him his twenty dollars back. Uh, we gave him his twenty dollars back and another yeah, yeah, yeah. twenty or forty dollars for tip because it was quite a good laugh. So there there were uh, experiences all around that were interesting. Yeah, good sense of humor is important on a long voyage too. I imagine. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I tell people I was six foot one when I left and I was five foot ten when I came back because. We hit a lot of rough water at different places, and we had challenges, as you would on a 24,000 nautical mile circumnavigation. Remember, we're taking a boat that's going to be operating in around icebergs in the Arctic and putting it into the tropics at the same same season without going through a major refit. And that's, mm-hmm. that's tough on gear and tough on equipment. But uh, we had lots of sponsors and supporters. Um, beyond the Millennium Bureau, this project was funded by the Maritime Museum and by uh, sponsors and supporters uh, in, uh, well, actually worldwide. Man Diesel, Transwest Resorts, Alcan Aluminum uh, actually funded the the uh, yeah. entire voyage. Uh, so 169 days was a, a world record, right? To the best of my knowledge, I keep searching, no one has, has done a uh, full circumnavigation in a non-ice-strengthened vessel. I mean, yes, Coast Guard icebreakers go through all the time. But yeah, it remains today to be the only vessel ever non-ice strengthened vessel to do a circumnavigation of North America in one season. There were other records that were set that have fallen in time, but uh, but that was the main one and the one I still cling to, saying I don't think anyone else has done it. Yeah. Uh, in 169 days, no one would be that uh, that foolhardy, I guess. If you're going to be doing it, spend years to do it, not uh, not six months. Well, that's amazing. Well, mm-hmm. pat on the back for that one, Ken. That's like... So you, I mean, you, you, you've, you've retired from the RCMP, but you're, you've connection to the North remains to this day, right? I mean, you're still leading expeditions up there. And I mean, what are some memorable places that you've been that really stand out to you? Well, I should say, so I retired early from the RCMP and I took over as the executive director of the Mm -hmm. Vancouver Maritime Museum, which is the home of the St. Rock. So a bit of irony there. And, um, uh, and I, I said to myself when I went through in 2000, said my children or my grandchildren would see a nice free Arctic. It's coming. And in 2016, we actually marketed and we installed Northwest Passage uh, exhibitions that are designed to go on to cruise or expedition cruise ships. So in 2016, I was on board uh, the Crystal uh, Serenity, which did uh, a circumnavig- or not circumnavigation, but went from Anchorage, Alaska to, to New York. And when we went through in 2016, we had to go look for ice. And I thought, I couldn't imagine, here I am less than one generation later, and there is no ice. And that will have a profound impact. Um, I end up, uh, after that, I ended up working with a variety of expedition cruise entities, uh, some Canadian, some different ones, that do expedition tours through the high Arctic. And... uh, Again, quite frankly, I was having so much fun. I stepped back from the museum uh, a few years later and went into full-time expedition cruise guiding. So I was spending my my uh, winters in Antarctic. So I would be, this time of year, I would be packing to go south. Mm-hmm. My summers in the high Arctic and the shoulder season in uh, either Greenland, Iceland, or the Caribbean. So uh, I was very, very fortunate. I did that cycle for about six years. Most amazing places, my goodness. Wow. Uh, you see faraway places and you meet very, very interesting people. 
uh, not only uh, people that live up there, but certainly people you're traveling with. Um, and, and it's worldwide. So at this point, I'd have to say I, I have a love for the Arctic, but the most amazing place was uh, South Georgia Islands in the South Atlantic uh, or mm. the Falklands, because that must be what the world looked like before man started tinkering with it. I mean, you have to picture South Georgia Island. Any area that's flat there has animals on it. So there are no airports on South Georgia Island. There are no landing strips because any flat area has fur seals or, or other wildlife or penguins uh, on it. And in the millions. So you, you have to really, yeah. you have to be careful where you step. There's that much wildlife. Uh, only six people live full time on South Georgia Island. One last quick story here. I was the ex expedition leader on the world this summer, uh, which is a, a large cruise ship, but it's privately owned. And we did Baffin Island, Ellesmere Island into Western Greenland. And uh, we were into a small town in Western uh, Greenland. Kanak is the name of it, right the northern tip of, of Western Greenland. And there was a couple of seals there. And there there was a an Inuit lad practicing what everyone assumed was CPR on this seal. And they went, isn't this nice? He's practicing a CPR. And I, I looked at him. I said, no, he's, he's making the seal fart is what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that the Greenland version of cow, cow tipping or something? <laughs> like... Exactly. I mean, you can't you can't make that stuff up, can you? <laughs> and, that, and we have him filmed doing it. And they thought he was practicing a CPR. No, no, that wasn't it. So uh, it's all about the people. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, I before I let you go, I, I ask everyone who comes on uh, if they have a favorite place in Canada. And I know you visited a lot of amazing places, but I'm going to have to insist that you narrow it down to one <laughs> place that really sort of s sits in your mind. And in the Arctic, I'm going to say Low Point, which is a, a point uh, named after a famous um, uh, geographer and a cartographer. It's north of, of Pond Inlet between Violet Island and Baffin Island as you're going up uh, north, and it's right on the border of a national park. So you have a national park on the left, Inuit land on the right, and a beautiful Inukshuk at the top, which you can look across and see all of the glaciers on Violet Island, which is a national bird sanctuary. Um, but when the flowers bloom up there, it's like this carpet has been laid out in front of you of reds and yellows and blues, and, and you would not expect to see that in the arctic but you can sit there and look down in the valley and it's like it's a freshly carpeted uh bit of paradise and uh with arctic foxes running around so it's, it's a magical place um as far as a, as a faraway place to go to which is fairly easy to to access um but one of the most i think amazing things i saw was right in a Callowit proper we were greeted by school children and uh, up on the wall was the Canadian National Anthem, and it was written in French, and written in English, and written in Inuktitut, and the children's choir sang the National Anthem in all three languages. So that was an amazing experience. Wow. So it, it's, uh, uh, you have to get out and explore. And when I travel and talk now, that's the keynote that I try to leave people with, is even if you can't go to the Arctic or the Antarctic, Go locally, go explore the parks in your area, go see the wild places, go to the reserves and, and just pick a park that you've never been to and go to or pick a place you've never been to, even if it's walking, yeah. drive, but get out and do it. Yeah. And it, it uh, increases your, your uh, enjoyment of life, quite frankly. 
Yeah. The amazing thing about this country is the wild spaces that we still have in, in a way that most of the rest of the world doesn't. And it's such a gift. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Ken, I, I know you've, there's a million more tales we could get out of you, but uh, they might have to wait for another time. And, and thank you so much for your time. And as one RCGS fellow to another, welcome. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much. It's a tremendous honor. And, uh, and I, I had a great time at the Geographica. It was amazing. Saw a lot of friends and, uh, and looking forward to uh, making many more. So thank you very much for this uh, opportunity. Black ice round us cracks and groans. The old St. Rock, she creaks and moans. The icy And thank you all for listening. A footnote to this episode, Henry Larson was the first recipient of the RCGS Massey Medal back in 1959 for his outstanding achievements in exploration. And a quick favor to ask you before you all go. Can you recommend this podcast to someone you know? You could do that over coffee, over a meal, by email, anytime anyone asks what podcast you're listening to. Just getting the word out about Explore in a real way is a big boost to the work we do. So thank you. And until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. We're as far north now as I want to come. But Larson's got us under his thumb And I signed up for the whole damn run I can't get off halfway But when I get back onto the shore I'm going south where it stays warm And there'll be someone on my arm To help me spend my pay So I'll take it from day to day